I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Happy New Year and welcome to Series 2 of Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. Together, we try to make sense of what's going on by looking at trends and the numbers that explain them. Now, 2024 is shaping up to be an important year for democracy across the world. By some estimates, nearly 2 billion people will be eligible to vote in more than 50 countries in some kind of national election. A sophologist paradise. Now, of course, around half of those people are in in one country alone, India. And not all of these elections are equal. Some of them are likely to be freer and fairer than others. I don't think people will be staying up late to see the results of the Russian election in quite the same way as they will for the US and the UK. But of course, some are very consequential, particularly the United States, but also other countries around the world. But we're going to focus today, you won't be surprised to hear, on what's happening here in the UK. Now, it looks as though we're likely to have the election that has to be held by January of next year in late autumn. And November the 14th has now become the commentator's favourite date, largely because that enables the parties all to hold their party conferences and then to go straight into election campaign. So, given all the speculation, we're going to talk about, first of all, where the parties actually are in the polls, why are they where they are in the polls, and then, perhaps more speculatively, how things could or might change between now and polling day. So we're going to talk first about where we are and then talk about why we're where we are. But I'm curious, John, you've done now dozens of elections. Do you enjoy election years? Yes. Some of them, of course, are more interesting and dramatic than others. 1997 was in one sense a very dull election because although, yes, it resulted in a dramatic change of government, it was kind of obvious what was going to happen for quite a long while. In contrast, everybody forgets now that in the spring of 2019, both the Conservatives and the Labour Party were in deep electoral trouble the Brexit Party came first in the European elections, the Liberal Democrats came second. And at that point, you certainly could not have anticipated, indeed, even when the election was called, you could not necessarily have anticipated that the Conservatives would end up with quite as comfortable a victory as they did. So some election campaigns matter and others, well, it's really only the result that was interesting, campaign itself relatively inconsequential, such as 1997. But there's always something to keep on the watch for. And of course, some elections you really feel like the direction the country may go in will be radically different depending on which 
party is elected. I mean, Thatcher is one of the most obvious examples, but not the only one. Attlee would certainly be an obvious example. And others, you feel that for all the noise and fury, the real differences between the choices and the political parties are not enormous. And we can come on to this, but I think I think this year's election may fall into that category. Sure. But let's talk about where we are and what, what at the moment looks like it's going to happen this year. John, take us through the numbers. So we now have lots of opinion polls. We now have more opinion polls than ever before. Too many, and, I think. Uh, <laughs> perhaps. But anyway, but cutting through all of that, and there is some variation between the pollsters, these are the average ratings of the parties as of the beginning of this year. Conservative, 26. Labour, 43. Liberal Democrats on 11. Reform now on nine and the Greens on six. So we do actually, although we're going to spend most of our time focusing on Conservative and Labour, it's worth bearing in mind we at the moment have no less than five parties who, according to the polls, appear to be above the 5% mark. And if that were to continue, that would also make the election somewhat interesting. Now, what this means is, of course, a dramatic turnaround since the last election in 2019. That 26% figure for the Conservatives is 19 points down on the 45% they got in 2019. Not a good five years. Uh, <laughs> Labour, in contrast, are only up 10. We're already beginning to see how much we're probably going to talk be talking about why the Conservatives are so low, less than why Labour are up. But even so, that's a swing, putting the two figures together of just under 15% from Conservative to Labour. And that's bigger than the swing that Labour eventually achieved between 1992 and 1997. They gave Tony Blair his landslide. That was just over 10 points. So we are in a very, very different place than we were at the time of the 2019 election. So let's talk briefly about where those voters have gone. So in 2019, the Conservatives won with an 80-seat majority. As you say, they've lost 19 points of their support. Mm -hmm. Who are the people who've abandoned the Conservative Party and, and where have they gone, if not all to Labour? Well, the voters, where they've gone is itself an interesting story. If you were to go back to the position immediately after the Liz Truss fiscal event. And it is the Liz Truss fiscal event in the wake of which Labour begin to get double-digit leads and have had consistently double-digit leads ever since. In the immediate wake of that, it was clear that the principal destination for those Conservative voters who were saying, well, I'm now going to vote for somebody else, that it was Labour. Though then, and it's still true now, a lot of 2019 Conservative voters are going... I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. But that in itself is not unusual for a party that's, that's in trouble. Now, however, and this is relatively recent development, for every one voter who voted Conservative in 2019 who now says they would vote Labour, and that's about one in six of those who've got a, a, a political preference at the moment, an equal number are now saying they're going to reform. So in terms of the flow of the vote, at least though not necessarily, of course, in terms of seats, reform are now posing as big a challenge to the Conservatives' ability to hang on to their support than are the Labour Party uh, directly. In contrast, the Liberal Democrats, who 
who often regard as the traditional party of protest for unhappy Conservative voters. Uh, the Liberal Democrats are only picking up about 5% or so of the Conservative vote. So it is Labour and reform that's going. Now, in the wake of that, you then might also be surprised to hear that the big thing that's happened is that the coalition of people who voted Leave in 2016 which was the coalition that Boris Johnson got together in 2019 and was the foundation of his support. Around three quarters of 2016, uh, Leave voters voted for the Conservatives and that was the foundation of their success. The Remain voting contrast was much more fragmented. For the first time now in the polls in the last month, the level of support for the Conservative Party amongst those who voted Leave in 2016 has fallen below 40%. So the coalition has been fractured not necessarily particularly because of Brexit, or we'll come back to that, but essentially because those people who voted Leave in 2016 are unhappy with the Conservative Party for much the same reasons as everybody else. And it's probably worth spending just a, a little bit of time on who those Leave voters are and therefore why they might be moving to reform. And also a little bit of time on why reform matters. So Leave voters, certainly in the in the Westminster imagination, tend to be somewhat less educated, mm-hmm. somewhat older, yes. slightly less well off, although not necessarily poor, uh, and somewhat more concentrated in outside the traditional stronghold of the Conservative Party, sort of London and the South East, mm-hmm. or bits of London and the South East, than, than the rest of the country. And therefore, the Conservatives' coalition that they hoped to build on on 2019 looked a bit different from its traditional coalition. Very much so. So is, is that correct? And does that mean that a plausible Conservative electorate after the next election is basically back to traditional, even if it's a bit smaller. It's the posh southeastern or not. Well, first of all, you are right. The remarkable thing about the 2019 election, because Leave voters are, have all the characteristics you describe, including also being more likely to be being, being in working class jobs, the Conservative Party was actually more popular than Labour at the margin amongst working class voters. And basically both parties' votes were very similar amongst both the working class and those in professional and managerial jobs. It's very little gradient. Actually, that has not been reversed. So although you're right, reform are picking up more working class voters. However, you have to remember the Conservative Party is also still losing voters to Labour, right? And if you actually look at the relationship between class and vote for the parties, it still looks very flat. So to that extent, at least, the legacy of Brexit is still with us because this is an important thing to remember here. One of the things that people often fail to appreciate, the real explanation is that basically the Conservative Party didn't have many Remain voters left in the first place by 2019, but it still managed to lose some of those. It's lost a whole barrel load of Leave voters. The Labour Party has been gaining ground amongst both Leave and Remain voters. So therefore, the structure of its support looks the same, which of course does therefore mean that once we start looking at why the Conservatives are where they are, Brexit isn't a major part of the story. So when you ask the question in the election, does Brexit matter? You have to ask, to what? 
Is Brexit central to understanding why the Conservatives are at 26%? No. No. Is it essential to understanding the structure of the support that the parties will get in this election? The answer is yes. And we can come on to issues in a minute, but I suppose one way to think about that is if everybody is fed up with you for exactly the same reasons, then you're going to hemorrhage people from every group to the same extent. And therefore, your makeup looks similar, but the amount in each of your groups... Exactly. And and I think there's there's another contrast to draw with 2019. 2019 was was very clearly what we might call a position election. It was an election at which one issue was put before voters, which is whether we should uh, uh, get Brexit done. Um, And voters largely voted on those lines. Four in five voters basically voted for a party whose position on Brexit was consistent with their own personal views. This election, however, I think is going to be much more about a valence election or a competence election. Let's just emphasise here, the Conservative Party has lost almost half its support. And to that extent, once your election is about competence, then indeed uh, the flow of the vote can move quite substantially, but it may well move across all the various structural divides that otherwise exist in our elections. I really agree with you, John. I get a bit frustrated with being forced into endless existential conversations within the sort of conservative world about is it age and is it is it generations and is it xyz when it's like no everybody hates you for the same reason there's there's no sort of dramatic clever democratic thing in the short term it's that they think that they're poorer and they can't get an ambulance if they're dying right. on the street so, so, so but before we do that sorry because i, I want to go on to this but but i think we should talk about reform very briefly because yeah, okay. you've talked a lot about where the conservatives are at risk of losing votes and reform has never managed to get an mp But by taking votes usually from the Conservatives in specific seats, they allow usually Labour to win the constituency. Is that what is likely to happen now and 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 well that is that 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 is the risk that the conser that the further risk that the Conservatives face. Although we should bear in mind that although Virtually all of Reform's vote is coming from 2019 Conservative voters. What is not entirely clear is whether or not all of those voters would have gone, would have still voted Conservative if Reform didn't exist. In other words, Labour may now face competition from Reform for the support of unhappy Conservative voters. All right? The second thing I think one should say about that picture is that, of course, you know, one of the things that happened in the 2019 election campaign that we were talking about earlier is that the vote did folk concentrate much more on the two biggest parties. They were both very weak six months earlier, but it concentrated on the two big parties. And a big question both about reform and about the Greens is, well, will those voters stick with them when we get to election campaign, given all the constraints that, you know, you've talked about the electoral system? Or will in the end, because of the concern as to whether whether or not voting reform will let Labour in, that, that voters won't stick with reform. And in a sense, that will partly be a function of, well, are the folk who are voting for reform really so unhappy about the Conservatives that, frankly, they don't care about the consequences? 
or whether in the end they do care about the consequences and therefore their vote gets squeezed. The other thing, of course, which is the speculation of Westminster, but we shouldn't get into, is whether or not Nigel Farage is going to come back and lead reform. And that, of course, then again, potentially also makes reform a much more attractive prospect. But I think before we move on to kind of explaining what's going on here, there's one other thing we should point out about where we are at at the moment. And that is, of course, one of the reasons why, at least until relatively recently, people were saying, oh, you know what, the Labour Party can't possibly win a majority in the next election. Just look at how far they have to be ahead in the polls just to get a majority of one. And the standard figure we quoted was about a 12-point lead. Which is less than they have. Which is, at the moment, is less than they have. But one thing then crucially to bear in mind, and this is where there is potentially an important lesson from the 1997 election. I think we're always going to be constantly going back and saying, well, what are the parallels with 1997? Um, there are, so the Conservative vote is down 19 points. There are nearly 70 constituencies where the Conservatives did not get 19% of the vote in 2019. And where therefore, ergo, it will be arithmetically impossible for them to lose 19 points. It therefore follows that the Conservative Party is going to lose ground more heavily in places where they were previously strongest, right? And this is, so although we're saying that the whole of the country is unhappy because of the fact the, the, the Conservatives are losing so heavily, they're almost bound to lose more ground, more heavily in places where they were strongest. Now, if you look at the local elections last May, you can see that happening. If you look at the British election study data, they run a big mega 30,000 poll. Again, you can see that's what's going on. Um, and, that, and that is also what happened in 1997. The Conservatives lost ground most heavily in places that they were trying to defend. Now, if you put all that together, right, the truth is the electoral system which profit, from which the Conservatives profited quite handily in 2019 could well punish them really severely. And, you know, my latest estimate, taking the current standard in the polls, taking into account the evidence we've got on the Conservatives likely to be losing ground more heavily in the places where they were strongest, the possibility of tactical voting, if all that happens... At the moment, the Conservatives could be down to about 140 seats. That is how serious, potentially, the party could find itself in, given the scale of the loss that it's currently suffering from. So, and, and, and for those who don't follow the uh, closely the number of MPs, that's more than 200 MPs. Yeah, and it puts, it'd, be, it'd be the worst ever defeat, absolutely. So if we just sort of very quickly summarise what we've been saying uh, before we talk about why this has happened and what might happen next. The Conservatives have lost huge amounts of vote share, particularly since the Liz Truss budget. Their vote in 2019 was very substantially leave older. It's still substantially leave older because they've been losing people equally from all of their groups. Mm -hmm. And those people have gone to a mix of Labour, but actually just as significantly, if not more, to reform or to simply don't know. And the other important point you made, John, is that national vote share doesn't necessarily equate to what happens in individual seats because of a combination of A, tactical voting, and B, because Conservatives are likely to lose more votes in the seats. Exactly. So, like, one sentence, it looks really bad for the Conservatives. So let's talk a little bit more about 
why we are where we are. Because you said that the big turning point was the trust budget, which was one of two turning points and Partygate. I, absolutely. So, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind this has been a very unusual parliament. It was, first of all, the attempt to try and rescue Owen Patterson's um, a career. Owen Patterson's a Conservative MP who had been found guilty of having uh, engaged in lobbying of ministers for, for organisations to be paid for, which is against the rules of the House. Um, and then immediately after that, we had the first stories about Partygate and the Conservative Party lost support very heavily in a very short period of time in December uh, 21, January uh, 22. And then the second crucial event is Liz Truss. But let's focus on the economy because this, this has been a remarkable parliament so far as voters' attitudes towards the economy is concerned. So if we take the latest Ipsos poll, and this is fascinating because this is a series that we can look all the way back to 1979 when Ipsos started this. At the moment, most recent poll, 50% of people think the economy will get worse over the next 12 months. Only 22% believe it will get better. So that in itself is not good news for the government. So that's a net optimism rating of minus 28 Now, the truth is that voters have actually been pessimistic about the economy throughout the whole of this parliament, except briefly between March and August 2021, as we began to get out of the pandemic. And this does mean that voters have been consistently and more deeply pessimistic about the economy in this parliament than they have been in any other previous parliament since 1979. So just simply in terms of the public mood, the government is very much facing a very, very difficult situation. And the other area which ranks extremely highly in voter priorities and where voters are very negative is the NHS. Indeed. Uh, British Social Attitudes has demonstrated that dissatisfaction with the NHS is at an all-time high. And what you can go on to do, both with the economy and with the NHS, if you look at 2019 Conservative voters and you divide them up into those who think the economy's doing badly and those who think it's not doing so badly, you discover, unsurprising, that those who think it's doing badly are much less likely now to say they're going to vote Conservative than those who say they do not. So the economy clearly matters. But the NHS also matters. It doesn't necessarily matter quite so much, but there is still a big difference. Those 2019 Conservative voters who think that the NHS is doing badly are markedly less likely to say they're going to vote Conservative again than those who are not. So these are certainly the two big concerns that wrap around the electorate. And the problem for the government, particularly so far as the economy is concerned, is that arguably a lot of the economy is a result of the pandemic, the Russian-Ukraine war, etc., etc. But because of the list trust fiscal event, it is so, so easy for the opposition to say it was the Tories what did it. And certainly ever since the list trust fiscal event, Labour has been ahead in the opinion polls when people are asked which party can best run the economy. And there is a striking similarity in that and the consequence of the Listras fiscal event to A, Black Wednesday in 1992, which saw, again, the Conservatives' reputation for economic competence shredded overnight and Labour emerging as the more popular on the economy, but also the financial crash, 2008, 2009. And the trouble is that history does suggest that wherever 
true culpability lies if you are not sitting in the right chair when the music stops, then you are at risk of being blamed for the situation arisen. And that certainly at the moment is, the, is one of the problems that the government faces. And I think that's understandable. If you have a population, and it's always worth remembering this, that cares relatively little about politics and doesn't spend very much time paying attention to it, and is expected to make judgments on these incredibly complex cause and effects that drive economic growth and their own wage growth, then these single events, Black Wednesday, Northern Rock, the Liz Trust budget, yep. stick in the brain and, and, and are how they evaluate what's happened. And, and it must be said with, with some justification. Yeah, and they provide drama and they provide theatre, right? Because they all, all of a sudden provide an intense uh, atmosphere where, in a sense, the message they're getting from the media is that the markets are out of control, uh, the government is not is is not able to uh, resolve the situation uh, easily, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it provides a drama that illustrates the story for the public, and it and it's a drama that they don't forget, and therefore Partygate also has a resonance which is still there for the public. And indeed, you can show that, you know, such progress as the government was making under Rishi Sunak in the opinion polls was largely thrown away when the Conservative Party failed to get behind the Privileges Committee report back in June of last year. The internal politics of the Conservative Party got in the way of what it badly needs to do. What it badly needs to do, it needs to be able to create clear blue water between both itself and Boris Johnson, and itself and Liz Truss. That is the challenge that really faces it. And that that seems to me immensely difficult, partly because many of the people involved were there. Rishi mm-hmm. Sunak was Chancellor. But also because, and we can talk about this in more detail in a minute, parties that have been in government as long and for as many parliamentary terms as the Conservative Party has always give the message to the electorate of we started the job, trust us to finish it. This is our record. This is what we've achieved. Vote for us again so we can carry on with the job. Mm -hmm. If you are desperately trying to create a break between you and all of your predecessors, it's quite hard to talk about anything you think they may have done well. It's also hard if the public don't think that there is a record to draw on. But, you know, one one question that has been discussed in sort of Westminster circles is whether Rishi Sunak made a mistake in trying to present himself as some kind of change candidate and should instead have focused on the decisions he did make in the pandemic, including furlough, which was very popular. Some of the things that the Conservative Party could at least make a sort of narrative about low unemployment, for example, tough decisions, because that's the only narrative that is possible. But that doesn't distinguish but, you from your predecessors. But, 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 the, but, but the problem for the Conservative Party is even worse, I think, even slightly more difficult, because the, one of the reasons why the this is our record, you need us to, to, to carry on, is that the Conservative Party itself doesn't like its own record in office. And it has about five of them. But the existential crisis that the party faces is that as a party of the centre-right, it has presided over, as we've talked about previously, a record increase in taxation, 
a record increase in the size of state spending, and at the same time has also not managed to deliver the reduction in immigration that was central to the appeal of the of getting Brexit done. So the problem is the Conservative Party itself wants to campaign against its own record. The aspects of their record the public are concerned about is the state of the public services and the state of the economy and party game, right? So, so the party is sometimes firing at the wrong target. I think that's absolutely right. And one thing I've noticed is how instinctively uncomfortable many Conservative MPs are with their own electorate. So we were talking earlier about who the Conservative electorate is now. Mm -hmm. And it is not entirely made up of the sort of people who vote in the very safe, traditional, long-term seats in the southeast of England. And very few Conservative MPs and senior positions have got their head around or want to get their head around the priorities of that electorate, which tends to be lots of spending on public services, not particularly right wing on the economy, the the kind of things that were part of the 2019 manifesto. And, and, And the worst version of this was them convincing themselves that actually there was a deep well of libertarianism across the country that was just waiting to be unleashed. So in a moment, we'll go and look to see what perhaps might change between now and polling day. But first, though, a short break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda, with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com. We have so far been deeply pessimistic. We have. So maybe we should move on to the question of could things change? Let me give you a statistic. And then I know, Rachel, you've been digging into how in the past parties in, in this kind of position have tried to deal with situations. So in December 1996, so kind of roughly the same time in the, in the 92 to 97 parliament, the Conservatives were also in deep trouble. Though actually they were at 30%. They were rather higher than they were at the moment. It's worth bearing in mind. But Labour were also higher than they were at the moment. Labour were at 51%. And and John, because people might not remember from 20 minutes ago, how does that compare to now? So at the moment, Conservatives are on 25. Compared to 30. December 1996, they were at 30. Labour now 43. Then 
December 1996, they were at 51. So again, it's a reminder how the vote is now somewhat more fragmented than it was then. Now, in the event, so that was a 21-point lead for Labour. So the lead was actually slightly bigger than the 17-point uh, lead at the moment. By polling day, the Conservatives had edged up to 31.5%. 1.5? Up 1.5. 1. But Labour had come down. Labour came down from 51 to 44, down seven points, not least because the Liberal Democrats had, had, had gained some ground. Now, if we take those movements, so the Conservatives up one or so, Labour down seven, and apply that to where we're at at the moment, according to the polls, we get the Conservatives to 27. That's still not very good. But Labour down to 36. So it's only a nine-point Labour lead. That might might not be hung parliament territory. So you can see why, although we are thinking it's very difficult for the Conservatives to win the next election, the question of whether or not they can do well enough to deny Labour an overall majority is perhaps still an important one. And therefore, we should look to see how things could change. And if we talk about sort of the, the three core reasons why the Conservatives might think things can change, the first is the way in which parties tend to react to shifts in the polls. And, and you mentioned that there are more polls than ever. We're submerged in endless polls now. But one of the things that Rishi Sunak will be very worried about is that if the lead remains this big, there is zero incentive for his own party to behave in an election campaign. There will be leaks. There will be people positioning themselves for the future. And there will even be resignations. And there'll be resignations. See Chris Skidmore just decided, I'm off. And Skidmore is a, you know, backbench MP who people don't know that much about. When this starts to become the credible contenders for the leadership, Kemi Badenoch, Suella Braverman, this starts to become very significant. So he'll be very worried about that. On the flip side, Starmer at the moment, despite some quite serious divisions in his party over recent events, has a fairly... You mean Gaza. I mean Gaza. Sorry, you're absolutely right. I should make that clear. Has a fairly iron grip on his party because they sent victory. If that starts to decline, then yes. the probability of rebellion and disagreement. So there's a sort of slight self-fulfilling prophecy about, about this that, that people worry about. The, there are two other reasons, I think, why the Conservatives might convince themselves that things will change. The first, if we talk about 97, I'm just looking at the uh, satisfaction ratings for Tony Blair at the end of 1996. And 47% of people approved of Tony Blair against 33% who disapproved. He had very high approval ratings. In the latest YouGov that I'm looking at, it's almost exactly the opposite for Keir Starmer. 46% disapprove of him, 36% approve. Now, they don't approve of Rishi Sunak either. But as we've discussed in the past, people are voting against the Conservative Party. They're not particularly voting for the Labour Party. And they don't have high approval of the leader. And that's relatively unusual. The third reason, if we keep looking at 1996, is that the Conservatives think that the economic indicators may improve very substantially over the next year. Inflation down, wages up, growth up. Now, that seems to me, from what you've said in the last few months, John, relatively unlikely to give them a huge dividend in the polls. Because if you look in 1996, actually the UK was growing 
very fast. We've been in consistent growth. The size of the deficit was tiny compared to now. Debt had been falling consistently for decades, obviously from the high of World War II, but consistently for decades. The basic economic indicators for the party were really very good. And the voters rewarded them with this with annihilation. Black Wednesday marked the beginning of the best period of economic growth in the UK's post-war economic history. And for the first time, we were having consistent growth without having inflation taking off. And it was the first time that this had happened. And Black Wednesday is part of the story. But the problem is Black Wednesday destroyed the Conservatives' reputation. So in other words, the problem with the Conservatives is that they, 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 two things have to align. So but the first thing is the economy does need to turn around. But then the second thing that needs to happen is the Conservatives have to be able to claim the credit for it. And this is an incredibly frustrating position for a government and a political party to be in because you don't feel like you have any levers that you can pull. Obviously, the the lever they've been pulling most frantically, which we haven't talked about yet, is on immigration, particularly illegal immigration. Although since Christmas for the first or just before Christmas for the first time on legal migration as well, because... Uh, to the Conservatives, at least, the the view is, A, that is a huge part of why they're hemorrhaging votes to reform. And B, unlike, say, the NHS, they think that they can do things and pass legislation which might make a difference. I know you, John, tend to be quite sceptical of this because you don't think it's actually what is swinging Well, let me, let me fill in a bit. I mean, of course, the truth is we should bear in mind the party might think they can do something about immigration. Doesn't mean they'll succeed. Doesn't mean to say they will succeed, right? Okay. That's also a pretty intractable issue. But, well, until very recently, at least, if you looked at... So I said earlier that if you looked at people who thought the NHS or the economy is doing badly, voted Conservative in 2019, they were much less likely to say they vote Conservative again. If you do the same analysis on immigration, both legal and illegal you discovered there wasn't much difference. In other words, lots of people are unhappy who voted Conservative in 2019, unhappy about immigration. But that doesn't seem to be the issue that's impelling them. That said, I have to say now, this is very, very provisional. The most recent data I've had has suggested that perhaps now, perhaps now, immigration is beginning to make a difference or perceptions of immigration But this isn't necessarily good news for the Conservatives because basically what seems to have happened is that whereas hitherto people who felt that immigration was rather too high were not particularly likely to affect the Conservatives or no more likely to do so than those who weren't upset about immigration, now they're beginning to be so and yes, they're going to reform. So it may be, and I say only may here, it may be that if indeed the Conservatives have succeeded in increasing the salience of immigration... It's not done them any good because actually it's highlighted for some of their voters why perhaps they're unhappy with the Conservative Party. And we mentioned Farage earlier, but it seems very plausible to me that if he comes back to frontline politics in a big way, that actually the the number of voters who move to reform because of migration will increase because they, he's always they, been very they, um, they may they may do so absolutely and um, i suppose my my other con- minor contention on immigration i mean it's not disagreeing that it won't help the conservatives but if you look at what's happening in europe and we will do an episode in the next few weeks on populism in europe you've seen a very big rise in right-wing 
populist leaders, most notably in the Netherlands, but in plenty of other mm-hmm. places too, mm-hmm. Italy, mm-hmm. and illegal migration as well as legal migration has been a huge driver of those votes. And it seems unlikely to me that the British population is inherently well, it's, different. Well, it's certainly worth bearing in mind, this is something that YouGov published literally yesterday. So they occasionally do surveys across a large number of European countries. And one of the questions is, how well do you think the government is handling immigration? The UK government's evaluation is the worst of any of the countries in that Eurotrack survey. In other words, this government has been keen to say, look at all the migrants that are going across the Mediterranean, at least we're managing to get them down. Well, when it comes to perceptions, the UK government is even more criticised than is the government in France or in Germany or in Italy. So even that isn't necessary. It does therefore emphasise your point that actually the potential, at least, of this issue to lose the Conservatives' vote as to what's happened so far. But there's one other thing, of course, we've not mentioned, Rachel, which we probably should mention before we close. The other comfort blanket the party has is tax cuts. Yes, it's signalling heavily that it's going to deliver further tax cuts in a budget on the 6th of March. And it's worth going... Again, history perhaps here also has a lesson going back to the 92 to 97 parliament, a not dissimilar problem for the party. The party after the 92 election, despite having criticised Labour about taxation, the Conservatives ended up increasing taxes. And indeed, the Labour Party's attack line became you know, uh, uh, 23 uh, uh, tax cuts. In 1995 and in 1996, the budget reduced the basic rate of income tax by a penny in the pound. It made no difference because then, as now, the evidence from the data was that the public were more concerned about the state of public services than they are about the level of taxation. And to that extent, at least, it's not entirely clear insofar as the government does have any fiscal headroom that putting the money into people's pockets in the form of tax cuts, as opposed to putting it to solve the problem of the doctor's strike and to get the waiting list down was necessarily electorally the wisest move. But again, as we said earlier, the problem is the party is wanting to disavow the high level of taxation over which it's presided in the last four years. And it's hoping by disavowing its own record, it might persuade voters to come back. But you can see why this is a difficult ask. There is another reason why the Conservatives might convince themselves that tax cuts will work slightly differently from the mid-90s, which is that Labour are focusing very heavily on fiscal conservatism. They are not going to be fiscally irresponsible. The same was true before 1997. Remember Tony Blair promised to follow Ken Clark's spending plans. The Labour Party are doing exactly the same thing now with the exception of the Green Deal. But what they're going to try and do is force Labour on the back foot to constantly respond to their changes in spending plans sure. with changes of their own. Sure. And they will hope with a with a electorate that's already somewhat suspicious of the Labour Party that this will further convince them that they have no principles, that they have no policies of their own, that they're fundamentally untrustworthy. And one of the things I'm sure the Conservative Party will do throughout the election campaign is endless stories about why Labour's plans don't add up. Sure. Secret tax. They go. Not to say it's effective, but that, that's going to be one of the reasons they do it. The, the other thing that is probably worth um, noting is that the public feel quite highly taxed 
right now, which they are relatively highly mm -hmm, taxed, mm -hmm. and also that there is there does not appear to be as neat a link between higher public spending in the NHS and performance as you might hope. There's been quite a lot of extra money going into the NHS over the last few years in real terms. There are a lot more people in hospitals. Performance is down. And despite that spending and quite a lot of attention over the last year since the pledges on the NHS, there's been no improvement in performance, partly because of strikes, but also for other reasons. So spending more on public services also might not get them the results that no, they but, want. But, but failure, failure to improve the public services will not give you much Absolutely. in the way. And, it's, and, and all, all of you say is true, but it's still, if you take the most recent opinion poll that asked people to choose between increasing spending and, and cutting taxes, 29% say uh, increased spending, only 20% say cut taxes. So the public mood is still on balance, still more focused on the services problem than they are on the taxation I problem. completely agree. I think it's just worth maybe remembering that when people say they want more spending on public services, what they mean is they want better public services. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the, I think, real challenges that the Conservative Party has, partly because it has very little time left, but not only for that reason, is they cannot be sure that if they announce more spending for public services this year, that they will have any improvement in record to talk about. But they know if they continue with the doctor's strike, they will not manage to improve public services. That is true. Okay, so to try and summarise that and what plausibly might happen this year, we have huge opinion leads for Labour. The evidence from previous elections is that increases in economic performance are unlikely to pay dividends for the Conservative Party. And of course, they also have talked a lot about immigration, but because the public don't think they've necessarily tackled the problem, it could harm them more than it helps them. Their hope will be that because people, again, unlike 96, 97, do not feel convinced by the Labour Party or even more so by Keir Starmer, that as chinks in their plans become more obvious through an election campaign, people will lose interest and support for the Labour Party. And there's always a chance that these things become slight self-fulfilling prophecies as that then causes a lack of unity within a political party, which drives more voter uh, disinterest. That said, it's not the strongest hope to go into your election year in, and it is very difficult to see what the government could do. It's not tax cuts, but I think also unlikely to be public spending that would really change voter mood. So we're starting January in typical January blues yeah, for the got, government and the country. We've got a government in deep trouble, but perhaps an opposition that's not necessarily entirely got the measure of, the, of its opponents as yet. On that incredibly cheerful note... Uh, thank you for listening. That's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. We'll be back next week. Do email us in the meantime with any thoughts or questions you might like us to answer. Trendy at tortoisemedia, that's all one word, tortoisemedia.com. A reminder that Trendy is now available on Tortoise News, which is where you can also listen to the news meeting and Tortoise's Daily Sensemaker. 
Search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts. Tommy from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected, thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail, two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.